Well, good morning. It's great to see everybody. My name is John Allen. Welcome to Risen Church. Uh, this past week, I had a chance to go back to the mountains of North Carolina where I went to school at Appalachian State University. Go Mountaineers! So, <laughs> uh, I, I loved um, college, and I got a chance to go back and, and watch a, a game. They played UNC. It was great. They lost, but they almost won, and it was really amazing. But App State beat Texas A&M yesterday, ranked number six. Some of y'all don't care. I do. So, anyway, <laughs> um, so that's a thing, right? Uh, I'm, I'm pretty uh, excited about that, but... Ultimately, it is great to be back here. Um, I, as I, I, I hadn't been back to that campus in a long time, and as I was walking through, and I mean, you know, it's been a, a lot of life has happened since I was uh, back at my alma mater. Um, but as I was walking through, I'm walking through campus with my uh, wife and three kids, and, uh, you know, I'm, I was surprised by the flood of memories that just kind of hit me and the way they hit me for how much God did in my life in those four short years. So I remember coming to Appalachian State, and I remember going to college and it being very new for me, but I think it was a, a part of what God was doing in my life in that season that really affected me. See, I grew up in Greenville, North Carolina, in the eastern part of the state, and my high school career was basically spent pretending to be an ECU student uh, in the 90s. Um, I had no real interest in Jesus at all or Christianity until my senior year of high school, uh, where the summer before that senior year, my older sister invited me to go to a summer camp on Lake Gaston. So I, I even showed up a day late because I didn't really take it seriously. I didn't really think, you know, I was just kind of thinking, well, this is a break from working construction in the Carolina heat, so I'll take it. Um, but when I got there, I was met in the parking lot by multiple people who, who I didn't even know, but they acted like they'd been waiting for me all year. Like they met me with so much excitement, and everybody seemed like they were so excited that I was there. They didn't even know me. They, they, they even called me new guy. That was kind of the, the term they gave me because there was a lot of other Johns there, and, and, and they already knew each other because they'd been coming year after year, summer after summer, so everybody knew each other. So I then was, you know, the new guy. And so that's what they called me, new guy. But they didn't treat me like an outsider. Not at all. Like, they were so happy to see each other. They were hugging each other. But they seemed just as happy. And honestly, they seemed like they were just as happy or more to see me. And it was honestly a bit confusing. I hadn't experienced that in my life. Like, I was a typical hard-hearted teenager trying not to say anything and be quiet, you know, and case somebody picked on me because I said something stupid while I was just waiting to pick on somebody else for saying something stupid. Because that's what insecure teenagers do. And insecure 40-year-olds do, right? So, <laughs> but this was a, a, a revolutionary experience for me. And I found myself in this place and I hadn't experienced anything like this. And, I, and then I found out also that there was this preacher who was there um, and, and he spoke to the whole camp twice a day so I was like, I found this out, and I'm like, great. Nobody told me about this one. You know, I felt like I was kind of tricked into it. But um, every word the man spoke, I found myself hanging on it. I mean, up until this point, I probably couldn't give somebody my attention for more than three minutes, you know. But every single thing this guy said was just 
mind-boggling to me. He opened the Bible and he explained the gospel so simply and so clearly, and I was introduced to the real Jesus. Not just some religious idea, but the living, breathing king of glory. And, and, and I often say that this man, his name was J.D., I often say that he led me to Christ, but the more I think about it, the truth is that the entire community engaged and embraced me into the kingdom. It wasn't just one person. Like it was a group effort. You see, the preacher proclaimed the gospel, but the people demonstrated it in the way that they loved God and the way that they loved each other and the way that they loved even me, new guy. It was like they couldn't wait to meet me and invite me into their family. It was a whole community of people who didn't just believe in Jesus. They knew him and they loved him and they worshiped him. I mean, they talked about him like he was in the room. Even in casual conversation, even when the old people weren't around, they were talking about Jesus. It was strange for me, and, but, but it was really life-changing, literally. Like, we'd be wakeboarding, and they would suddenly start talking about Jesus like he was there. Honestly, half the time, I didn't know what they were talking about. Like, they were using words that just were like, I have no clue. But I was kind of like, yeah, that's great. Tell me more. Like, I want to know more. Instead of pushing me away, like I think often we think that that's the case when we talk about Jesus around people, I was hungry. I was like, I'm not an outsider here. They're welcoming me in, but there's a lot to know that I don't know. They didn't, make, they didn't pretend like I knew everything they knew or who they knew. And they were inviting me in. And so I became like a sponge surrounded by fire hydrants. And in the best possible way, it wrecked me. A whole week. These people loved God so much, and they loved each other in a way that I've never seen. I didn't even know it was possible. I was the new guy in the family. I belonged with these people. They were all on a mission together to welcome me into their family and to introduce me to their father and their savior and their king. I didn't stand a chance. Everywhere I looked, it was like they were all on the same page with this thing. And that week, Jesus truly made me a new guy. I pray this is our community as a church. I'm thankful that it is. I love this church. It's why I love church and gospel community. And I pray that not only you would feel embraced, but you would feel empowered and equipped and encouraged to engage and embrace everyone that walks through these doors. This is why our mission and our vision and our everything surrounds sharing life in Christ, our risen Lord, with each other and our city and beyond. But when that week was over, I had to go home. Back to the old rhythms. The same old relationships, high school, same old situations and parties and all the things, right? But this time, I went with the Spirit of God and the Word of God. It changed everything, but that year was probably the most difficult year of my life. I went to church with my parents, but nobody seemed to really care or even believe in Jesus. It was like everybody was just kind of acting 
or, or all about just acting a certain way. And the sermons were basically like, be a good moral person. And I, I'm sitting there like with my hair on fire with the Holy Spirit going, he's alive! This is real! And they're like, yes, he's alive. That is doctrinally sound. And I'm, I'm, I'm like, I don't even know what that means or, or what doctors have to do with anything, but Jesus is real and we should go tell people. Like that was my mentality. I was just... This is where I was, and so I did. I told everybody I knew, right? But nobody seemed to get it. And that year was extremely difficult. I had this ache for that gospel community that I had experienced. I even received a few letters from the people at that camp. Both campers and staff would write me letters encouraging me throughout the year. This is before smartphones. <laughs> you can just text them. But I was starving for that kind of community. And then I went to college, and God just immersed me in it, just soaked me in it. He even let me help plant a new church during my four years there. And he taught me that we're not just called to find gospel community somewhere. We're called to cultivate it and create it, making disciples who make disciples. But it's a team effort. And so as I walked through my old campus this past week, I was flooded with memory after memory about how faithful God was and has been to me. Especially, he met me there. He filled me with his spirit. He welcomed me into his family. And he commissioned me with his purpose. And he's doing the same thing and he's calling the same thing for us as his church and as his people. See, it's not just about a new religion. It's about a new family. It's about a new identity. It's a covenant community that's partnering together in the great commission to go and make disciples. So we're not just called to preach the gospel and leave. We're called to embrace people into authentic gospel community because while we proclaim the love of God in Christ with our words, we demonstrate the love of God in Christ through our relationships. And that's what I want to talk about this morning, and, and that's what I want you to see in our passage this morning. So for the past few months, we've been walking verse by verse through the book of Colossians in our series called Firmly Established. It's a letter written by the Apostle Paul who's been traveling around the known world uh, in the first century, sharing the good news of Jesus Christ, and he's making disciples who make disciples, and he's planting churches that plant churches. And so by the time he writes this letter to these, this church in Colossae, it would have been around the year 62 AD, which is roughly 29 years after Jesus died on the cross and resurrected from the grave and ascended into heaven. But before Jesus did, he told his disciples in Matthew 28, 18, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them or immersing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And that's exactly what Paul has been doing for the past couple of decades at this point. In fact, by the time he writes this letter in, to the Colossians, he's already traveled around the known world three times, and he's currently on house arrest in Rome because of what he's been doing. 
which is where he'll eventually actually be killed in Rome for the sake of the gospel. But during this journey, he spent a couple of years pastoring a church in Ephesus, where he met a man named Epaphras, who became a Christian and got trained up under him and then went back to his hometown in Colossae to plant a church. And a few years have passed now, and Paul's been made his way to Rome, but he has no idea that the gospel's taken root in the city that he's never even been to until Epaphras brings this news of what God's doing in Colossae. And so it's about the year, again, 62 AD, and Paul writes this letter to this young, growing church in Colossae, this, this family, this gospel community. And he writes this letter, and he makes it clear through this letter that, that though he hasn't even met them, they are qualified. They are legitimate members of God's family through the blood of Jesus. And he encourages them to live and love like Christ. And our key passage for the whole series has come from Colossians 2, verse 6 through 7, which says, excuse me, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. And so last week, Rich did a great job of teaching on what it means to live as an ambassador of Jesus. That we're called to enter every situation with the intentional awareness that you are Christ's representative. That you have been called to carry with you the good news and the righteous agenda even of the kingdom of heaven. I pray that that becomes our default in every scenario that we walk into. I love it. But then you see a shift here in the letter. And Paul simply closes this, this amazing letter of instruction and just meat, right? And then he shifts and he goes into these detailed personal greetings. You might be thinking, how are you going to preach about just a bunch of personal greetings? How are you going to get a sermon out of that? Right? I admit, it's easy to overlook this section as if it's insignificant or irrelevant. Just kind of close and be done, right? Because it, it's almost like he's just, he's finished with the important stuff, and he's just kind of like, you know, at this point he's just saying like, say hi to your mom for me, as you kind of walk away. You know what I'm talking about? Like you're done with the meat of the conversation, and it's just like, tell your mom and dad I said hello. You know, that's what this seems like. But how many of you know that nothing in the Bible is insignificant? I'm going to show you what I'm, what, the, the significance of that statement here. So I want to take a deeper look at this passage and show you that it's oozing with the gospel. Not just the proclamation of Paul's words, but through demonstration in his personal relationships. So here's what I want you to get this morning. If you get nothing else, here's what I want you to get. We proclaim the gospel with our words but we demonstrate the gospel through our relationships. We proclaim the gospel with our words, but we demonstrate the gospel through our relationships. And God is calling us to do both. So turn with me to Colossians 4, and I'm going to read through verse 7 through 18. We're going to read through these final greetings, and then we're going to drop back and try to draw out the power of gospel community on mission that's being displayed here. So Colossians 4, verse 7 uh, through 18. So, here we go. Verse 7. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I've sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are, or sorry, that you may know how we are, and that he may encourage your hearts. 
And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, they will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they've been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you always, or greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. All right. So as a framework for the rest of our time, I've got three questions to help us see the gospel on display, even in these simple salutations, okay? So the first question, why does Paul include these greetings? Second, who are the people he's greeting? Third, how does it all apply to us today? All right? So first, why does Paul even include these greetings? So Paul doesn't always do this. He doesn't always include these kind of detailed greetings or salutations in his letters. In fact, he doesn't even do it at all, really, in his letter to the Ephesians, which weren't too far from the Colossians. Why? Why does he take so much time, then, to put such a personal stamp on this letter of a church he's never even really met in a city he hasn't been to? So I think he does this precisely because he hasn't met them. This is a statement about the importance of personal connection in Christ. He wants them to know that they are legitimate and qualified. He wants them to feel like and know they are family. And so he goes out of his way to make these personal connections. So he doesn't just assume it, he makes it clear. Right? I may not know you, but I know people who do, and they say you're legit, and so then I do too. And I'm thankful for you, and, and I'm greeting you, and this person greets you too. These people that you've heard about that are with me, you've heard about them, you've heard stories about them, they say hi, right? This is important. And he actually does the same thing when he writes to the Romans. He had never been to Rome when he writes the letter to the Romans, but in chapter 16, he gives them a litany of personal greetings, Right? And this is how he closes his letter. But then again, he doesn't feel compelled to do this with the Ephesians or the Thessalonians. You don't see it there. Why? Because he knew them really well already. And he probably knew them all really well to the point where he'd spend an entire book of just saying hi to everyone. He doesn't want to leave anyone out probably. And so here we have, though, a clear and desire to include and affirm and connect on a personal level with the Colossians. That in itself is a picture of the love of God in Christ that's demonstrated through his people. Which then leads me to the second question. Who are these people? It's kind of a long list. 
We've got 10 specific and personal greetings. We've got Tychicus, Onesimus, Aristarchus, Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, Justus, Epaphras, Luke, Demas, Nympha, and Archippus. And all uh, are in this area or not, or, or they're greeting or they're with Paul, right? And so uh, there's also a few other greetings uh, to churches in the region. So here's the question. Who are they? Look at verse 7. It says, Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He's a beloved brother and a faithful minister and a fellow servant in the Lord. I've sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. So we know from the book of Acts that Tychicus came to Christ under Paul's ministry in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. And Colossae would have fallen under the region that he represented on Paul's sort of team of traveling ministers, okay? It's giving you some backdrop here that's going to be important for you to even grasp a lot of what's going on in the New Testament. Because you're going to hear these names and see them, especially in books like Acts, okay? And so this is probably why he's part of the group who hand-delivers Paul's letters to the Colossians and to the Ephesians. Because he's kind of their representative, So he's also highly loved, it says, and highly respected by Paul as a beloved brother. He's a faithful minister. He's a fellow servant in the Lord. Like if that's how you're known, that's how history knows Tychicus. That's awesome. Right? Paul mentions him first here, and I think it's, again, because he's commissioned him to be a primary voice of encouragement to the Colossians. So Tychicus, though, is one of those names that doesn't get a lot of attention. It doesn't get a whole lot of airtime in the Bible. But I think it's safe to say that he played an extremely important role in the early church. So if you, if you meet Tychicus in heaven, shake his hand. Okay? Another member of the delivery team of this letter is a man named Onesimus. Verse 9 says this, And with him, Onesimus. So Onesimus is with Tychicus. They're delivering this letter to the Colossians. And he says, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. Which means both that he's from Colossae and he's a brother in Christ. And he says, they will tell you of everything that has taken place here. So he's talked about Onesimus a couple of weeks ago. His story is, actually, I'd say like if there's another Christian movie that needs to come out, it should probably be about this guy. Because it's one of the most fascinating and interesting stories, I think, in the Bible. And it's a prime example of the gospel being on display through relationships. Onesimus was a runaway slave. He was a man who likely couldn't pay his debts and therefore was bound to another man, a Christian man in Colossae named Philemon. We're going to, we learn more about him. But instead of working off his debts, Onesimus took off to Rome. He abandoned the whole thing. But while he was in Rome, he met the Apostle Paul, and this runaway received Jesus as his Lord and Savior. So now Paul is sending him back to Colossae with this letter, okay? And back to Philemon. But he doesn't send him as a slave or a bondservant. He sends him back as a faithful and beloved brother. Say brother. A brother who is one of you. Paul even writes another letter directly to Philemon, called Philemon. It's in the New Testament. 
And he's encouraging Philemon to receive Onesimus the same way he would receive himself. The same way that you would receive the Apostle Paul, I want you to receive this runaway slave. That is powerful. It's kind of a side letter that we get. And again, we see the gospel on display through these personal relationships in the midst of a scenario where bitterness and division could have easily taken root. It might have already taken root. And he's saying, be rid of it. Be done with it. The grace of God brings unity and it brings peace. It brings a releasing of offense with it. And it's a demonstration that backs up the proclamation of the gospel. This is how the church grows, and this is how the kingdom advances. This is how and why the local church is God's primary plan for accomplishing the Great Commission. God wants to work through you to accomplish his mission on the earth. Let me say that again. God wants to work through you to accomplish his mission on the earth. And that's not just by dropping a tract in somebody's cereal and moving on. If you've done that before, praise God. Can people come to Christ that way? Absolutely. Is that God's plan A? He wants them embraced in the gospel community. If that comes with an invitation, awesome. But open arms is the way of Jesus. Amen? So let's keep going. Who's next? Aristarchus. Verse 10. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner greets you. So we know that Aristarchus was a representative of the Thessalonian church who, like Tychicus, frequently traveled with Paul. So Paul may be referring to Aristarchus as his fellow prisoner here because maybe he's under arrest with Paul in Rome, but it could also be a reference to what happened a few years ago in Ephesus, okay? Uh, Acts 19 tells us that during their ministry in Ephesus, Aristarchus and another man named uh, Gaius were seized by an enraged mob and they were dragged into this massive theater where upwards of 20,000 people were stirred into a demonic frenzy. You can read about this in Acts 19. The gospel spreading so fast that these pagan temples of Artemis, which was the Ephesian goddess, uh, the the pagan temples were losing money. The entire economy was impacted. The economy that depended upon worship of Artemis was impacted because so many people were coming to Christ and turning away from Artemis. Even the craftsmen who made their living by making these idols were upset, and they were saying, I don't have enough income because everybody's turning away from Artemis and turning towards Jesus Christ. And they accused the Christians as being troublemakers. It's a powerful impact, right? It's pretty cool. And so what happens is this demonically fueled mob gets stirred into this frenzy, and they're accusing the Christians as troublemakers, and they seize Aristarchus and Gaius, and they drag them into this theater as they're chanting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. It was almost like a demonic like pushback and like a final, like, I got to get, I can't, this can't happen anymore. And so finally, reason, though, prevails, and they actually arrested him and put him on trial, and it seems that he was eventually released because we saw him traveling with Paul later after that event. So when, but all that to say, when Paul calls Aristarchus his fellow prisoner, I'm not sure if it's a title of honor that he's giving him and reminding the Colossians of what happened in, Ephes- in Ephesus, right? It could be like, my fellow prisoner. Remember what you heard about this guy, Aristarchus? This is the guy who's saying, hi. Like all those stories, they're real people, and they're people who know about you and love you. That's what's going on here. Maybe Aristarchus has been arrested again alongside Paul in Rome. I don't know. Either way, the Colossians would have been 
invited and embraced into this larger family that wasn't just stories they heard about. It was real people that knew about them and were even greeting them in love as gospel family. It's like he's saying, see the family you belong to. See the cloud of witnesses that surround you. This is your heritage also. Again, if you meet Aristarchus in heaven, shake his hand. Verse 10 continues, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. Now, I really want to hone in on this one because this is not... uh, just a passing element here that doesn't matter. I want to dive into a little background on this one because there's a serious display of the gospel in this, and it's beautiful. Acts 13, verse 13, tells us about how Mark, also known as John Mark, and sometimes just John, one is a Hebrew name and the other is a Greek name, so some, oftentimes they get interchangeable, and you'll see that a lot uh, in the Bible. We're told that John Mark was traveling with Paul and his cousin Barnabas on one of their missionary journeys headed for a place called Antioch. But for some reason, John Mark abandoned them and went back home to Jerusalem. We don't know why he did it, but we do know that it did not sit well with Paul. It really upset him, actually. And in Acts 15, Paul says to Barnabas, let's go back and visit all the churches in every city that we preached the gospel in to see how they are. And Barnabas then says, great idea, and let's bring John Mark with us. Look with me at Acts 15, verse 38 through 41. This is Paul's response. This is what happens. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement, so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Paul with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord, and he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Now, I want you to be careful here to not project your own offense onto this situation. I hear it all the time. People talk about how disunified Paul and Barnabas were in this moment. I'm going to say that's not true. I'm going to show you why. It doesn't say that they were offended. It doesn't say that they were not unified in Christ. It says that they had a sharp disagreement when it came to their preferences for how they should continue in carrying out the Great Commission. That's important. I don't think Paul was bitter or offended by Mark or Barnabas here. In fact, praise God, young Mark is still involved and even wanting to go. That's powerful. That's probably one of the reasons why Barnabas, whose name means son of encouragement, wants to help him. But Paul thinks it's too soon. So who's wrong here? Who's wrong, Paul or Barnabas? Neither. They're both right. In fact, they're both seeking first the kingdom and his righteousness and trusting that all else will be added unto them even in this situation. And in this case, I want you to see that their disagreement was not a sign of disunity. That's important. A lot of people take offense and then it does lead to division, right? 
But that's not what's going on here. In fact, the result of this separation is that the kingdom advances in multiple directions. And we see later that Mark is actually fully restored both into the ministry and in his trusted relationship with Paul. Like, praise God for Barnabas and his faithful loyalty to his cousin, right? And praise God that he believed the best about young Mark. But would it have been a good idea for him to go back to the region that he had so recently abandoned? Probably not. Paul at least didn't think so. But Barnabas was not willing to abandon Mark. And so I think Paul was thankful for that. I really do. I think Paul wasn't like, ah, he's a throwaway. That's, we know that Paul does not think that way from his letters. We see this over and over and over again. And so the result here is a display of God's grace. I think Paul was thankful for Barnabas' decision here, even though there was a disagreement. So what we see is God's grace on display, and, and the Colossians church here had actually probably likely heard about Mark's abandonment. And yet here, Paul commends him to them, and he gives them specific instructions, saying, if he comes to, him, to you, welcome him. Now, we don't know what those specific instructions were exactly, but I suspect that they were words of affirmation, and I'm going to explain even more why I think about this a little bit later. Look at verse 11. And Jesus who is called Justice. <laughs> These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Now, we don't really know much about Justice or Jesus Justice. <laughs> All we know is that he had a great and uh, probably confusing first name, <laughs> um, and that he was born Jewish, and he had become a fellow worker for the kingdom of God. Okay, That's what we know about him. So that's what Paul means by men of circumcision here. It's a way of saying that they were born Jews. It's probably why he has a Hebrew name and a Greek name, right? Jesus called justice. So the rest uh, mentioned here in this list would have been born Gentiles or Greeks, okay? So verse 12, look at this. Look with me here. Verse 12, Epaphras, who is one of you, a Colossian and a brother, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you always struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Now remember, Epaphras is the one who came to Christ under Paul's ministry in Ephesus, and he went back to his hometown of Colossae to plant this church. Like he's the reason Paul's even heard about what's going on in Colossae and why he's writing this letter. So Paul's now affirming Epaphras before the Colossians and all his hard work and his prayer desire to see the Colossians stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God, right? So this sounds like, watch this, Colossians 1, 28 through 29. This is the heart of a Christian who's caught the heart of God. Hear this. It's one of my favorite passages, and it's, he's, he's echoing this passage when talking about Epaphras, right? Colossians 1, 28, it says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. He's seeing this spirit and desire in Epaphras, and he's telling the Colossians about it. This is the heart of Paul. This is the heart of Epaphras. This is the heart that he desires for us all to operate in. And that's why he's lifting this up as a, a, a noble, good thing. 
And so the solid takeaway here is that the greatest, though, the greatest and most effective work in this kind of ministry is done by struggling on behalf of others in prayer. Catch this. This is going to set some of you free. Without prayer, all that good desire to present people mature in Christ, if you're not praying for them and laying that before the throne of God, it's going to turn into anxiety and the desire to control people and situations around you that you were never meant to. So pray for one another. If God wakes you up at 3 in the morning for somebody in your church, pray for them. And then sleep like a baby. Because it's in his hands. God's taught me that lesson. Almost every night. He continues to. And I love it. Without prayer, what are we doing? Right? Verse 14. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. So if Luke sounds familiar, it's because he wrote the Gospel of Luke as well as the book of Acts. Pretty cool, right? And yes, he was a physician. He was a doctor. In fact, he was Paul's traveling physician. Luke would have traveled with Paul on his missionary journeys, documenting in detail what happened, which is also how he was able to put together the book of Acts, right? As well as caring for Paul all along the way. So the Colossians would likely have also known of Luke and about Luke. And so Paul's saying, um, hey, Luke says hi, right? So what about Demas? Who's this guy? Like, all it says is, as, as does Demas, right? It's interesting. Who was he? Well, he's a part of Paul's team, but there's not much else about him here, and I wonder if then Paul actually may have had some concerns, because later in 2 Timothy 4, verse 10, Paul tells Timothy that Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. So this guy later in love with the present world, deserted Paul, abandoned him. Guys, that hits hard. That's a tough one. Especially since we know that second, whew, I want you to see this, guys. Lean into this. Don't just, please don't check out. I know it's a lot of information, but I'm telling you there's power and there's stake in this. Please don't check out. 2 Timothy 4, or 2 Timothy was written as Paul's last letter, and he's writing from Rome, and he's about to be killed. Look at, look at, look at this. 2 Timothy 4, verse 9 through 11, he says this. We, we know that he knows that his time's about to be up, and we know that he was beheaded in Rome. And listen to this. He's writing to Timothy. He's about to be executed, and he says this, Do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia. Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Praise God for Luke, right? Come on. Whoo. Get Mark. And bring him with you, for he's very useful to me for ministry. Wait, is this? Could, th could this be the same Mark who abandoned him? Yeah. 
It's the same guy at the end of his life when he's feeling the pain of betrayal and he's staring at the sting of death right in the face. Who does he ask for by name? John Mark. In the midst of his abandonment and he's facing the axe and the man that he wants by his side to pray with him and to minister to him and with him is the man who had once abandoned him but has now been reconciled and fully restored. Because that's the gospel. We don't know for sure, but I can imagine Mark hurrying to Paul's side in Rome. I can imagine Mark casting aside every fear for his own life by associating with Paul, which is what would have happened And he and Timothy rush to go pray with Paul, even praying for Demas along with Paul. Like you can imagine Timothy and Paul and Luke there with Mark praying for Demas, the one who had abandoned them. This is one of the reasons why I suspect that Paul's extra instructions to the Colossians that we read about earlier regarding Mark were instructions of affirmation and acceptance. And what a comfort Mark would have been to Paul. Like, think of the courage and the joy that his presence would have ignited in him. Just, just like, to be reminded of God's faithfulness and grace, both in Paul's life and in Mark's life. And you can be sure that it would have sparked hope in their hearts for Demas' salvation and restoration. So this is the gospel on display, right? Like, what a beautiful picture of grace and redemption and reconciliation. Also, yes, this is the same Mark who wrote the Gospel of Mark. And that would have taken place just after this. So if you see Mark in heaven, shake the man's hand. And if you see Demas in heaven, don't just shake his hand, run up and hug him and praise God that he turned back to the Lord. Amen? Verse 15. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea, which is the church in Laodicea that was nearby, and to Nympha and the church in her house. So Paul gives a greeting to the church in nearby Laodicea, and specifically to Nympha, who was probably a woman of means, which was a common phrase uh, uh, for most of the time. It's widows whose husbands have left them with a lot of property, and she's leveraging it for the kingdom. So this wasn't uncommon in the early church because of Christianity's political status. They couldn't meet in larger buildings in the city. And so they would meet in large homes like Philemon's home. And so there's even evidence that some of the homes were renovated to hold large gatherings of people. So we're not necessarily talking about a small living room here. Like, you need to understand this is probably a large gathering, potentially the size that we have here, or larger, maybe even much larger. So there's, uh, again, verse 16. Here we go. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of Laodiceans, and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. We've lost that letter. That's a whole other sermon. Verse 17. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. So we know from Paul's letter to Philemon that Archippus is likely Philemon's son who would inherit the estate of his mom and dad, who had leveraged their home for the church. We see, we get this from what we read in the letter to Philemon. So the young man, Archippus, did in fact have a ministry he would be inheriting in the Lord. This is an encouragement to the next generation in Colossae. Archippus would be sitting in the seat of others' sacrifice. 
Namely, all those mentioned before him in this letter and ultimately the sacrifice of Christ. So we, I want you to get this, we also, all of us, are sitting in the seat of all of their sacrifices and all of those who've gone before us building and expanding and praying and sacrificing and leveraging their time, their talent, and their treasure to see the gospel flourish and the kingdom advance. And here we are. Praise God. And we've got a heritage and a legacy to leave. Amen? So this is our challenge. See that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. Every one of you. Every one of you. All of us. A little passionate about that, right? Because it's so, it matters. And finally, the last verse in Colossians here. Verse 18. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. So prior to this, we know that Timothy was likely writing as Paul dictates this letter. We kind of get that idea in verse 1, or chapter 1. Maybe because he had actual chains on his hands, I don't know. But at this point, Paul takes the stylus into his own hand, and he signs it personally, again, emphasizing even more his personal connection with the Colossians. So he asks them to remember his situation as a prisoner. But his ultimate desire here is that they be a community of grace in proclamation and demonstration, and that they remember his situation in prayer. So let's close with this. How does this apply? How does it apply? Why do these personal greetings and relationships matter to us? Think about how this gospel is demonstrated through these relationships. These relationships are marked by the gospel and They're set apart from the rest of the world. The gospel is that God became a man and he lived the life we couldn't live and he died the death we deserve to die and he conquered death in the grave and paved the way to eternal life and it's an eternal life that starts now, not just one day when we die, but it starts now through the indwelling and filling and and regeneration that the Holy Spirit does within us. We get new hearts, new desires, new values. He changes us from the inside out. This is what it means to be rooted in him, firmly established in Christ. And so this is why intimacy with Jesus is so important. Like it's not just so you can feel better about yourself and have more peace in your life. Like that's great. But if that's your only drive for having a quiet time, you've missed the point and made it about you. Okay? Now, I want you, you will. That's good. You need that. But there's more to it. See, the closer you get to God, the more you will know him, and the more you'll be filled with him, and the more you'll want him, and the more you'll be filled with him in the spirit, and the more you, the more you are, the more you'll be filled with his love and his desire for his people, both the lost and the found. That's not always easy. At times, when you operate out of that, you'll find yourself misunderstood. You'll find yourself unseen. You'll find yourself feeling unknown, maybe even abandoned. But he's promised to never leave nor forsake you. He didn't say you won't be forsaken by others or abandoned by others. He didn't say that. He knows it better than anybody. Paul knows it. Jesus is with him. 
and he never shrinks back from those relationships because Christ is with him. And he promised that his grace is sufficient for the call. See, we aren't called to love one another with our love. We're called to love one another with his love. Your love is going to run out. And you'll eventually want to check out, pull back, cover and protect. But his love calls us onward into community and into our commission. This is why 1 Peter 4.8 says, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Say earnestly. Since love covers a multitude of sins. I know that I'm passionate about this. And so I also want you to know that I'm very thankful for the way our church loves one another. Amen? Never get neglectful of this. See, Christian maturity is when your love for them becomes the overflow of his love for you. Say that again. Christian maturity is when your love for them becomes the overflow of his love for you, not the other way around. So if your love for God is only strong when people love you, it's time to grow up and be filled up to overflowing by him. This is how this works. This is what real community on mission looks like. It's outward focused. It's Godward and overflowing, not inward and self-centered. It can be difficult at times, yes, but even then, that difficulty becomes an opportunity to demonstrate grace because it's the reminder that we are forgiven by God in Christ, which makes us want to forgive others. It's the reminder that we are pursued by the love of a good God that makes us want to pursue others. It's the reminder that God wants to work through you to accomplish his mission on the earth. It's the reminder that people are the mission and the local church is his plan for accomplishing it. This is the gospel we proclaim and this is the gospel that we demonstrate. We're not perfect, but we are perfectly loved. This is gospel community. For this we toil, striving with all his energy that works so powerfully within us. This is our commission. Like, how easy would it have been for Onesimus or Philemon or Mark or even Paul to take offense and hold on to bitterness? Like, how could Onesimus and Philemon live as brothers? Think about that. They would both have to lay down, their social, lay down the social constructs of their day along with their own right to be offended. It's the only way that works. Archippus also, he was the son of Philemon. Like, he could easily have taken up his dad's offense towards Onesimus for abandoning them. It's likely that the duties of Onesimus would have now fallen to Archippus. So how could he receive Onesimus back as a brother? Jesus changes the way you see everything, changes everything. So how could Paul receive Mark as a beloved brother? Or what about Mark? Like he could easily have taken offense at Paul for not giving him a second chance back in Acts 15. So are you like Paul and Barnabas? willing to sharply disagree even with others on minor issues and yet still be fully united with them in what matters most? That's a big one. Or is your preference too strong and your ego too delicate to consider others' position? This is an important part. We don't major on the minors. Does that make sense? We major on what matters most. Don't be offended by people who have different preferences than you. Listen, the devil in our flesh love to highlight selfish preferences for division. 
But Jesus calls us to keep our eyes on the main thing. And what's the main thing? The gospel of Jesus Christ and the Great Commission. The truth is, when we are secure in these areas, it gives us the grace to talk about important, important, but secondary issues without a judgmental spirit. Now, there are reasons to divide. That's important, too. There are real reasons, good reasons, that we should divide over. In fact, even as I was preparing this sermon, a couple of Jehovah's Witnesses rang my doorbell. That's a true story, like right at this point as I was preparing things. In case you didn't know, they deny that Jesus is God in the flesh, which means they are not Christian. They're preaching a false gospel. And they were walking around my neighborhood going door to door preaching a false gospel. That's not a preference thing. That's a heresy thing. And it's good reason for division. But it's also a good reason for me to set aside offense and invite them in and share the true gospel with them, which I did. I wasn't offended by them. My heart broke for them. I wasn't trying to win an argument. I was trying to win their hearts to Jesus. They were backpedaling hard, and as they were sprinting out of the front yard, I'm like, bring your friends. We'll order pizza. It'll be great. <laughs> the point, though, is, is like... We strive to live an undefended life. Uh, excuse me, an unoffended life. Because our life is defended by the ultimate king, right? We're secure in him, so we strive to live an unoffended life by being firmly established in the truth. Love and acceptance of the living God in Jesus Christ. You can't escape offensive situations. They're a part of this life. Proverbs 19.11 says, Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. 1 Corinthians 6, 7 through 8 says this. Paul's writing to a very offended and divided church filled with a number of people who are actually suing each other. And Paul says, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why is it a defeat for them? Because their goal is to be about the advancement of God's kingdom, not their own. And so then he goes on and he says, why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Like better to be defrauded in righteousness than to defraud in order to justify your own personal offense. In other words, let it go. Right? Lay down your right to be offended and pick up the cross. This is where true security, affirmation, provision, and protection comes from. This is what being firmly established in the love of Christ looks like. It's not laying down. It's not it, like indulging lies and toxic situations. But it is firmly establishing yourself in the truth and the grace and the goodness of a sovereign king. That doesn't mean ignore the reality of difficulty. It means behold the greater reality of his goodness and grace and let the offense go. When you do, you'll not only proclaim this gospel with words, but demonstrate it in your relationships. Let's pray.